Hello, everyone, and welcome to Human Centered Security. Today, I have Natalie Hill joining me. So Natalie is a senior product designer, so I'm very excited to talk to her about all things UX. She has over 20 years of professional experience, and she has a master's, Master of Science in Information Studies. Her niche is enterprise UX. She really loves finding elegant solutions to complex design problems and understanding the psychology that drives human behavior, also something I'm super interested in. Natalie considers cybersecurity one of the most important things in the world and has spent the last four years designing network, web, and email security solutions. Um, she probably put that in there just to make me happy, but I, I think we'll have lots of interesting things to talk about in terms of UX and cybersecurity. Natalie is a seasoned guitar player um, playing in a band when, of course, non-pandemic times are happening. She's also on the board of directors of the nonprofit Girls Rock Austin. Um, and I will put a link to that in the show notes. So Natalie, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited to dive into UX, cybersecurity, all the things. So thank you again. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to you. So tell me a little bit about yourself. What led you into security? Yeah, sure. So I came into the world of UX uh, by way of many years doing web design and then decided I wanted to get my master's degree. It was worth, uh, you know, putting my career on pause to further my education. And when I, I graduated from grad school, I kind of immediately started working on enterprise systems, like for the industries of say higher ed and then healthcare and in working with healthcare systems, that got me working with protected data, like PHI, PII, PII, and you know the things you have to take HIPAA training on to, to work with, but I thought it was really interesting and interesting problem to solve. So I became interested in data security, data protection and privacy, and that kind of segued into me working into cybersecurity. Yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah. So one of the things that we had talked about initially was uh, the fact that you've designed for both end users and admin, admins and, and analysts, um, mm -hmm. and not to present you with a, a leading question, but like, you know, what's different or similar, if anything, in terms of designing for technical versus non-technical users? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. So if we think about it in terms of risk, I guess I could frame it that way. Uh, let, let's see, I don't want to perpetuate a, a stereotype or anything, but some non-technical users may be more likely to accidentally cause a cybersecurity breach, like for example, clicking on a malicious link or even getting spearfished because uh, they're, you know, getting pretty good at uh, spoofing right now too. But um, so I was working on an endpoint product, and this is where we considered the the admin and then the technical end user versus the non not as technical end user. And again, framing this around risk. So we we want the non-technical user to be able to say uh, work with tech support if they need to resolve an issue, if they need to temporarily disable their endpoint uh, because they can't perform their their tasks, something's going on. So we want them 
we want the system to be able to have a baseline of being easy to use, right? But then on the flip side, we have these tech, perhaps, you know, very technical end users. And for whatever reason, either maybe they're exiting the company, going to another job, uh, they could be disgruntled, or just because they can, they'll try to disable an endpoint, for example. So that would, you know, pre present a potential security leak where they could uh, steal IP or other protected data. So in that way, you know, that's that that's something we considered when designing for those two different user groups. You know, we want something to be easy to use, but also, uh, you know, not too easy to to take apart. What I want to talk about is risk, which is mm -hmm. one of the keywords that you talked about um, when you were describing these examples. And I think people who aren't in cybersecurity, and maybe maybe it's an enterprise thing, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm curious when you started thinking about risk, because I don't think it's, I don't think that's something that necessarily occurs to all UX folks. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe they think about it in terms of like, I, I want to manage the risk of, you know, wasting a bunch of money redesigning a website, you know, that, and we haven't validated a bunch of assumptions. Like, maybe they mm -hmm. think about risk that way. But the way you described it, you know, risk management in terms of cybersecurity, I think is not something that UX people yeah. think about enough. And that's, yeah, that's a great point. I think it became on my radar, again, when I was working in, in healthcare systems, and I saw that it was, you know, having a lot of data is not always a good thing. It can be a liability because if you have private data, like personal information, you have to safeguard it. And depending on where you are in the world, there's different standards that govern that type of thing. But, you know, I think it became, like I said, on my radar at that time when I was working with healthcare, also working with patient, you know, records, mm -hmm. uh, things having to do with their healthcare, things that were pretty personal, right? So the, the thing, the thought of someone getting in and being able to just to steal all that data, I think it really hit, hit home with me at that time. So it came back to the human side of it, right? Like we can think about the enterprise too and what will happen to the business if there's a cybersecurity breach, but it also affects people. And, you know, if people had to, they're they're better about this, I think, in Europe with the GDPR, but having some control over your own data as well. So that that's a part of it too. I think empower empowering users, right? Like transparency, like so they can see what's going on, but also a little bit of control. Yeah. Did you feel like you have had to be the advocate for the end user, or do you feel like everyone? has generally kind of felt the same way. Uh, sure. Yeah, that's my job. I think primarily yeah. my, my job is to advocate for the end user in, in a product team. You know, obviously I need to be considering the business goals, right? And that's right. part of the art of what we do is balancing business goals with user needs. But at the end of the day, I feel like as a UX professional, I'm there to advocate for the end user or, you know, if the end user is an admin, 
you know, all, all, all the users of a product um, and also, you know, considering the buyers too, because that's often a different persona, but right. uh, in terms of usability, yeah, I, you know, I've had to advocate because sometimes getting a feature out the door quicker might mean compromising some, some uh, usability, some user experience details. And that, that is a reoccurring thing. I think like the, the, the need to advocate for the user say, Hey, hang on, we need to make this feature understandable before we release it into the wild. You know, just the rush to get stuff out the door. I think that's an ongoing, one of the ongoing issues, but you know, again, it's part of the part of what I do and it's fun. Yeah, two things you said there were interesting. Like the first was, you know, I, when I do UX workshops, I talk about like you have the business's goals and then you have the user's goals. And if those don't align in some way, like if you think of like a Venn diagram, right? Mm -hmm. If they don't overlap in some way, if they don't converge at some point, then you have a problem, yeah. right? <laughs> so Absolutely. If there are conflicting goals, like the, the business will never achieve its business goals if it doesn't align with what the user wants to do at some point. Uh, so that's one. And in, in talking about risk, like risk is, I suppose, uh, like I'm trying, I'm like visualizing this as an infographic, but I think risk is probably part of of the business's goals, even if maybe that's not mm -hmm. something that they've put forth and told you as the UX person about. Uh, and, and managing risk is is part of that. And it's, it's helping everyone. It's helping the business. It's helping the users. And then yeah. the second piece that you were talking about was uh, shipping things out the door quickly, mm -hmm. right? Just get it yep. out the door. And yep. <laughs> I think it's actually a bunch of UX people. I was going to attribute it to Jared Spool, but I, I think this is pretty universal um, with some of the UX thought leaders out there, the idea that, yeah, sh you can ship it. And like, usually it's like, we'll fix it later. Right. We'll right. fix the user experience later. Oh, yeah. Well, there's never, that never happens. There's never. No, <laughs> I know. And, and then it's like, okay, we'll file a, a, a bug or, you know, right. a ticket to put it in the backlog. And it's like, guess what? It keeps getting pushed further and further down the backlog. So, so yeah, it's not something UX isn't something you can kind of sprinkle on at the end, right? <laughs> right. Right. But I think a lot of businesses might think about it that way. It has to yeah. be embedded from the start. And whenever you do have that user-centered process and, you know, businesses that are, are mindful and, and really want to make features understandable before we get them shipped out, I just think it's so much, it's so much more successful, right? And it, it might mean, um, delaying things one sprint right like two weeks but you know often it can really result in a fewer calls to tech support so that's a big metrics a big excuse me a big metric that i think is something that you actually should be in the loop on too right so <laughs> well and i think i think the security people listening to the podcast are also thinking like, yes, and security needs to be baked in too. Like that can't be an afterthought. That's why all of these terrible things are happening is because it ha it has been an afterthought and no one's built security in from the ground up, just like a lot of people haven't built in UX from the ground up. And, you know, then you 
see the consequences after that happens. Yeah, I know. And like what what's happening now, you know, with the uh, ransomware, with the yeah, uh, the you know the the pipeline. Um, that kind of stuff keeps me up at night. Like thinking about these archaic systems, like utility grids, like stuff like that that could be yeah. taken out. So we talked about. Uh, in our initial call, we talked about personas for bad mm -hmm. actors. I'm wondering if this is probably the perfect time to talk about that. So have so just for those listening, a persona is a proxy for a group of users. So uh, folks who have different motivations, behaviors, um, and they're used as a tool. They're based on research. They usually just make personas up. Um, they're based on user research, and they help teams have a shared understanding of who they're designing for. So when they're making decisions, they can point to what would this persona say, do, think, feel in this situation, and how can we design better products for them? So that's what a persona is. Uh, but I think a lot of times we don't think about building personas for people who don't have the best of intentions or you know someone outside of the company. So we'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that, Natalie. Yeah, sure. And there can be also personas for bad actors who might be in, inside the company as well. So right, right. there's a concept of, right, like protecting the things that, that shouldn't go out from going out and also protecting the things from coming in that shouldn't come in. So that, right. the, you know, those concepts in cybersecurity. But so, you know, I think I mentioned like the highly the highly technical user who might want to disable an endpoint so they could steal data. That's right. one. But depending on the product, like if I'm in email security, then we could have, you know, someone who's uh, trying to spoof the an executive. And so there's that kind of persona, someone who is trying to do some spear phishing and spoofing. Saying who say, you know, saying that there's someone they're not. There's also a lot of attacks are automated, right? So their uh, attackers might be, you know, have, have a system where they're sending out bots and they're just looking for vulnerabilities in different different systems. So I guess there are kind of passive, uh, you know, potential bad actors and then you know, active people who are trying to to get in the system, you know, to to penetrate, get in the system, get you to share credentials, things like that. Yeah. Has that been, have you built personas for bad actors in any of the projects that you've worked on? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, thinking about it now, it's interesting that the persona we did build was for uh, an internal bad actor, right? Mm -hmm. So someone who potentially would know their way around the security system and be able to to leak data. So yeah, that was one persona. That's super interesting. Did you find it helpful as you were designing to kind of think back on like, you know, how would this person act or, you know, how would they try to circumvent this particular control? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So again, it, you know, this goes back to we, we want our systems to be understandable. So say a, 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 a well-intentioned end user could work with technical support to resolve an issue they're having. Um, but like, I'm trying to think of specific user interface examples. 
you know, we don't, again, want, we wanted to show and surface log files, uh, again, for troubleshooting purposes, but mm -hmm. we didn't want, th th there were certain attributes that we wouldn't show in these log files uh, because we didn't want to surface too much, again, for that bad actor. So that's one thing, when, you know, specifically that I can think of. Yeah, that's a great example. Yeah. I want to move into content, content strategy, content design, particularly because I think it's something that is very needed when it comes to cybersecurity. So, you know, you think of those dialog boxes or those error messages, and it's just like, this is an error. <laughs> this is an error. You, you, uh, you must read this other error message in order to troubleshoot this, you know, and it just like is this kind of hilarious uh i don't know it's like a mind game right and okay so <clears throat> excuse me I, i've got to say one of the most rewarding parts of what i do uh is being able to work with writers uh like you know you were saying i think in an email they used to be called technical writers right uh, right and it's like content strategy or ux writing but i'm so glad that ux writing is, is a thing now that that's a discipline that's really being uh, highlighted because because it's so important like you were saying the error messages you know people need to know what to do next right. i think with error messages and it seems you know so easy to craft something with with words to 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 nudge uh the user in the appropriate direction to funnel them in the right way and like i said empower them with enough knowledge to know what to do next. But what I found is that a lot of these things, especially alerts and error messages are written by engineers sometimes. Right. And right. it's just, it's like, whoa, what? Like, again, I, you know, go back to tech support. This is going to call a lot of, cause a lot of, you know, support calls. So what can we do to, to mitigate that? Right. And that also goes to, uh, speaks to surfacing the right information at the right time, uh, you know, another principle of content strategy. And I guess in terms of content strategy, what what I think of it as is moving uh, a user through a system with purpose, right? And an e-commerce site is going to have different goals than an enterprise cybersecurity product, but you still need content strategy for both, you know, to address those respective goals. So I, I, I think that writing good error, good concise error messages, like it doesn't mean you have to write a novel, but have them formatted nicely. Um, tool tips, using progressive disclosure of information, you know, under say an icon or, or, or a link, uh, to surface a little more information that's I'm, I'm a fan of that uh using hint text under a form field just to just to give them a little more help you know like you ha imagine you know how they're thinking you know they don't know what you know so <laughs> yeah absolutely uh i was gonna say that you know there's there's kind of two things when I think of content strategy, just as it applies to cybersecurity, obviously all the things that you mentioned um, are, are great examples. The idea that you want to prevent 
something bad from happening and like you're trying to communicate with the end user to in that preventative aspect and mm -hmm. then also in the event that something bad does happen then you, you have to communicate okay user here's what you can do next to to mitigate this like i'm thinking about just as an example like an email compromise okay so you know that that's happened what are the steps that you need to take next um you know understanding that they might be in a state of mind where it's difficult to, you know, to get through this information and like, what can you, how can you lead them through this, you know, as, as painless as possible uh, while still getting the job done? Well, I wanted to kind of go back to technical writing, mm -hmm. um, you know, that, like I said, like, that's what I think about when I think of um, taking these complex things, taking these technical things and communicating to to the user in a way that makes sense to them also i'd like to point out you know people who are on the tech are are technical you know maybe admins or or analysts those are people too and they also appreciate clear and concise messages maybe they need different information than the average user would but that doesn't give you you know they still don't want to be confused yeah. it doesn't like you don't just get an out because you know they happen to be more technical no like that that that's exactly right you know just because somebody is a technical user doesn't mean you shouldn't use like straightforward human language right. to communicate with them because they're still human right i i mean we need to think about the context and you know the persona like you said like some some things that i think you know the user that I, that I would want to see they would want to see but again it's how we would deliver that information to them to you that really counts yeah you you talked about you just said context and when i think of and correct me if i'm wrong when i think of context i think a lot about progressive disclosure as a way to combat that combat the um uh, the, the just like dumping information onto the user so progressive disclosure is like the information that you need to know right now and then I'll give mm -hmm. you more, you know, in, in the context of the situation. But anyway, let, my question to you is like, talk a little bit more about context and like, you know, how does progressive progressive disclosure play a role in that? Yeah, and and you know, I think I'm a big fan of using progressive disclosure of information too. I do think that it, what's going to be most helpful is to to put some early designs in in front of your users because. Like, I would think, you know, I wouldn't want to see everything on the screen at once, but there might be some things that your user would, it could surprise you that they, you know, what might look a little messy to me might be like, oh, no, no, this is what we need, right? Um, but so, yeah, I had a, it was really interesting on something I was working with um, that, we had a lot of different options and, you know, you could make one selection that was, was a kind of a, a, a legacy selection. And we were adding, this is like a radio button. We were adding a new option and I wanted to clean up, up the screen because there was so much just text everywhere. Right. Um, I, I think that again, it was something that the engineers had done. Like it was driving me crazy. There'd be an option and then italicized text, like there's really long sentence next to it. And, uh, you know, a bunch of rows of, of that kind of thing. And working with the writer, uh, you know, I, I 
I wanted to put at first, I wanted to put everything under a tooltip, right? Like a little information icon that you could hover on and oh, okay, you know, and see that. But there were some fields where it was better just to have hint text underneath the field, like just have it there, especially if it relates to like formatting or something like that in a in a form field. Um, and then there was certain supplemental information that we did want to put behind a tooltip, but I just thought it was interesting because my first instinct was like, clean it up, you know, let, let's get everything hidden behind these little info icons. But then we revisited it and just, you know, took each option on a case by case basis to see what information would be helpful to see on the screen at the same time while you're working. So, you know, versus what would be helpful to hide, you know, just behind a little uh, tooltip. And something I want to say about tooltips also is that it's important to, if you're, if you're going to use progressive disclosure to make sure that whatever, you know, method you're, you're using, it is accessible, right? Especially if this is really important content, like we learned through an audit that the tooltips in our system were not accessible, meaning that if someone was using the, the keyboard, you know, or screen reader to navigate content, it would just would skip that. <laughs> it wouldn't even recognize that. So I guess that's another thing to, I would say, just to be mindful of when you're using uh, progressive disclosure of information. Yeah, those are two really important things that you mentioned. First, the idea that I think sometimes designers have a tendency of, you know, wanting to clean things up and just make it as clean and as simple as possible. But that sometimes comes at the expense of usability because if it's a form, for example, and they need that information in order to fill out the form correctly, then you don't want to hide it behind a tooltip, right? Because mm -mm. It, not all users are going to be are, are going to be inclined to access that, might not see it. And then the second, the accessibility part is also something super important and i think i think it's getting talked about more in the cyber cybersecurity community the idea that you know accessibility is is super important and like you said with the tooltips if you know if you can't access that information um <laughs> you know that yeah. that's very problematic yeah the other thing that you said that I was like, yes, I was like secretly like pumping my fist when you were saying, <laughs> saying it was the idea of like getting it in front of users. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm a user researcher, like, I literally do this all the time. So I, I empathize with the idea that the, the fact that it's not an idea, it's the fact that it is difficult to get things in front of users doesn't make it, it doesn't mean that, you know, you, you shouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think in cybersecurity, it's even more challenging. Do you have any recommendations for UX people listening to the podcast of how how to get access to users early and often? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I also experienced uh, this issue working in healthcare. A lot of times, you know, due, due to privacy or whatnot, it was hard to to get access to users. Um, also just getting access to clinicians, you know, physicians who were busy people. Um, that that was sometimes difficult, although we could make it happen once in a while. But yeah, so my 
advice is that there there are teams within your business that are a treasure trove of information and insights about your customers and users. So talk to your your sales engineers and technical account managers, professional services uh, and, and technical support like these folks are going to have so much information and can really share meaningful insights about the user's pain points. And you also might be able to say, run a report, you know, like have, run a Salesforce report, like for the, for the cases that have come in um, over the last month. And there could be some real low hanging fruit you could fix, simple UX fixes. So I would say to do that, like talk to the people who are talking to the customers in your organization and that that could go a long way yeah absolutely uh i did that recently for two different projects we talked to like the support team and we were able to review some support calls as well and try to understand you know how how users think about things um you know what are the some of the common questions some of the common roadblocks that they have and you know that like you said was a treasure trove of information in terms of prioritizing things that needed to be fixed. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And again, like professional services teams that go out into the field and help get customers set up because they'll really know about, you know, these different kinds of environments and configurations that just different use cases that exist. And sometimes it's a challenge to even get buy-in for UX. And I think in part that contributes to the difficulty in getting in front of users. I know I personally have encountered this where there was a reluctance to put the researchers or put the UX folks in, in front of customers because I think they just weren't convinced of the value that that would bring. I think after the fact they were convinced, but before, for, they were like, well, do you really need to talk to customers? Like, that's kind of a hassle. Like, we don't want to impose on them. Um, how do you overcome things like that? Getting that yeah, buy-in. I know. And it's so disappointing to me that it's that stuff still happens when I just feel like investing a little bit early on in the re research process that really pays off for a long time. Um, but I would say that, you know, I think actually talking to customers can be kind of a great um, marketing tool in a way too. Like it, it makes your customers feel valued that you want to hear their opinions, right? I think it will help them be loyal to your to your brand, even if they're experiencing issues with your product. So there's one thing, there's one angle. Um, if you can get like screen grab video of, of someone struggling with a product, and show that to leadership, like seeing it uh, will go a long way as well. In my experience, sometimes people just have to see it to understand that, oh yeah, we need to, we need to talk to people and fix this. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the other thing I think that sometimes leadership doesn't 100% get in terms of UX research is the idea that sitting down with users can uncover opportunities to add value that you never would have considered before. Yeah, that's a great point. Exactly. And yeah. really can help you differentiate your products from your competitors. Because, Absolutely. You know, and that kind of 
I've been thinking about this a lot, like the past couple of weeks. So I kind of need to go on a rant here, but yeah, talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) Like the, we have so many different, there's so many like marketing messages around cybersecurity products, but I think sometimes people shy away from, and maybe it's just because that's where the money is. Like they're just going where the money is, uh, shying away from kind of like the systemic issues that we have with cybersecurity. So as an example, and I'm not the first person to say this, Bruce Schneier actually uh, wrote this in an article uh, that I, it it's not a new article, but it's it was a new to me article. We as users are trained to click on everything because that is how the internet is built. You click yeah. or you tap on something and yeah. like, and then you say to users, don't click on that. Yeah. Well, You've literally built the internet to click on things. Our mental models are to click on things, uh-huh. even important, yeah. like really important things, right? Like verify this email or, uh-huh. or you know, verify this account or, yeah. you know, and all this, you know, security alerts and stuff like that. You click on a link and you go right. somewhere. So why are we expecting users to not click on links? Like, I mean, think about how counterintuitive that is. I know there's a lot, what we're asking users is to like think twice before you click on links, but mm-hmm. where are the folks who are like, let's fi- fix this piece of it, right? Well, <laughs> I, I, you know, that's, that's such an interesting problem to, to, to solve. Um, I think I was watching this uh, series recently. I think it was this HBO and it was a generation hustle and it was all, it's different episodes about different cons, con men or women and, and what, you know, the things they pulled off. And um, I remember when I started working at, at my last company uh, and I started working on an email security team. That was the product that I was initially working on. And, the uh, senior director of that team, it was like, you know, look at it, look at the classic cons, you know, when you're thinking about email security. And I didn't really understand mm-hmm. what he meant for a long time, but uh, seeing this series made me realize, like, one of the the con men was telling the police in an interview, like, I'll, I'll kind of clean up <laughs> the language he used, but it was like, people don't assume you're BSing them, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that when it comes to clicking on links, maybe we need to, to train people more so just, you know, about like trust and perceptions of credibility. And maybe you should, you know, it's a little bit paranoid, but maybe you should assume that, you know, some of these some of these things are, are, are untrue, right? That there's some people with malicious intent behind it. So I I don't think we can necessarily train like for every context, for every situation, every link. We can also build systems that mitigate, uh, you, you know, user error or irresponsibility uh, by say uh, defanging a URL. And mm-hmm. that I worked on a feature like that. So, well, I'm, I know we could go on and on talking about this, but do you have any parting words or advice for our listeners? Form a good alliance with uh, your product manager and also the developers on the product. Uh, work with QA when you can as well. I think that's one thing that 
UX, sometimes it, it doesn't happen, but I find it so useful if we can get QA in early in the process to your your company's teams. Uh, if you can't get access to your users, you know, talk to your professional services or technical account managers or tech support and, you know, just keep doing more and more UX because we need it badly. <laughs> It's especially yes, in cybersecurity that, that cybersecurity really is one of the most important things, one of the most consequential things in the in the world. And, uh, you know, we just need more uh, good people in it. We need more creative people, too. That's a big thing I see as well. So make it interesting <laughs> while you're at it. Yeah. Anything you want to call out or promote? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, you mentioned I'm on the, the board of Girls Rock Austin. It's a local nonprofit that is actually part of a, a bigger national and possibly international group, the uh, Girls Rock Camp. And we have programs that empower girls, uh, transgender, non-binary youth through music education and performance and mentorship and self-care. We have two summer camp sessions that have been, it's going to be virtual again uh, this summer as it was last summer. But yeah, anyway, visit our website, girlsrockaustin.org. Yeah. And um, yeah, my own website, I'm at leafygreenmedia.com. Uh, I like synesthesia. So that's, uh, I think that's why I chose that. But you could find out more about me at that website as well. Well, thanks so much for joining me, Natalie. It has been a pleasure talking with you. I really uh, appreciate you geeking out on UX totally with me. Totally love it. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> All right. Thank you again.